Greetings, interdecisional spaceship passengers. This is your co-captain Jake speaking. Before we depart, I just want to tell you something I'm really excited about. If you don't already know, we have a website for the podcast at decisionspacepodcast.com, linked here in the show notes. Brendan has been hard at work making this a beautiful and useful space for all decisionauts to explore. The exciting news is that we just added a brand new tab titled Articles. In addition to some of our thinking around decision space, we just added our first community member submitted article. This article comes to us from Aurora. She is one of my favorite people in the board game hobby, as well as a top tier writer and strategy thinker. The article is a review of the decision space in Seven Wonders Architects, a game that Aurora thinks offers more decision space intrigue than perhaps first meets the eye. We are honored to host her piece on our website, and you'll hear us mention it later in the podcast, but I just wanted to take some time up front to encourage everyone to go check it out right now. It's that good. After you read it, meet us back in the Discord to discuss the game and article in depth. Maybe we can even convince Aurora to write some more articles for us in the future. If you'd like to contribute an article, let's talk. Nothing would make me happier than bringing a wider range of people and ideas into this space as we navigate decision spaces, spaces together. Welcome to Decision Space, the only podcast right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And this is the show about decisions in games. I mixed that up. <laughs> what? what happened? I don't know. What was podcast first? Let's just roll with it. It's totally fine. Awesome. Well, we're doing things a little bit backwards in more ways than one on the show this week, uh, which is for longtime listeners, you might open this, see in your feed and say, whoa, did I time travel? No, you didn't miss our two game deep dive episodes. Jake and I are just mixing things up. We thought we'd do two topical episodes, then jump back and do two game episodes, and then maybe do two topical episodes in a row, sort of this more what we talk about style, and see how that flow works for us to give ourselves a little bit more time to delve deeper into some of the games that we cover in depth on the show. Uh, Jake, what do you what do you think of this? And what do you think about this episode? The top 10 games we're enjoying right now? Yeah, no, I'm really excited about this conversation. And we sort of were at a standstill as to whether we should cover Living Forest, which will be the next game we cover, or doing this top 10 list. Uh, and I kind of woke up this morning and was just, I don't know, I felt like not in the headspace for talking about a deep dive review of a game, but definitely in the headspace just to chat about some games that I've been enjoying the most this year. And we're ha- more than halfway through. As of this recording, it's the midpoint in July. So we're more than halfway through 2022. So I feel like it's a really natural point for a check-in about what games we're enjoying the most. So this list is just the top 10 games that Jake and I have played literally this year. Not our top 10 games of all time, not our top 10 games we would have liked to have played, but we have to, the rules for this list are you have to have physically or digitally played it in 2022 and you had to really like it. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's interesting because a lot of I've played some of my favorite games of all time this year, uh-huh. but they're not necessarily making my list, maybe because I only played them once and I've played others more just to give me like cumulatively more joy. Um, so I think it's going to be sort of an interesting take and something 
that I think is a bit different from kind of the run of the mill top 10 lists that tend to skew a little bit more, I don't know, like academic, right? For, for our reasons why we think this is like our favorite or best game. This is just purely, these are games we played this year that we've enjoyed the most playing them so far. So my list is quite a bit different than my, you know, top 10 games of all time. Yeah. So is mine. I'm trying to think, I think there's a couple games that maybe would appear in my top 10 of all time, but we'll see. We'll have to get into it. Like Jake said, pre-planners know that we're covering Skinner Spildiar's nominee, Living Forest, in our deep dive episode next week. I don't know why I said it with that voice. I I guess because it just feels fancy. Yeah, it is fancy. fancy. Um, But so that game's really awesome. We'll talk about it next week. Then after that, we're probably going to cover the Isle of Cats. I think we should. I I already have a lot to say. Awesome. Me too. And then (laughs) following that, we'll cover probably Blood Rage, maybe Dice Hospital. Maybe. Maybe Agricola. Uh, we've we've brought up a lot, definitely Agricola at some point, but that game is like, oof, it's going to take more than more than a few weeks yeah. to unpack the depths of that one. One other thing to just get excited about that I want to set up for sometime in the near future. Uh, let's just say our good friend, friend of the show, Paul Solomon, had some words to say about how we characterized him on last week's episode. Uh, so I got this idea that we might have Paul, come back on the show to defend his stance and defend Cult of the New in general in one corner and and Brendan on the other corner talking about classic games, why we need to respect our elder games and I'll be the moderator host. And I want to set up like debate style. Like you guys get like, like I'll like keep a timer and I'll have questions. And at the end, people can decide, you know, who they think won the debate. So first ever uh, decision space debate night, I think, is something that you can look forward to in the future. I know Paul is in. Can we call it decision space debate in space? Debate space. Yeah. <laughs> debate in space. I don't know. <laughs> we'll work on it. We'll, we'll work. work on it. But I think that'll be really fun. So something to look forward to. Okay. So we're each doing 10 games. So that's a mm-hmm. lot to get through. But Jake, I'm curious. Do you have any honorable mentions? Games that didn't make the list, but that you felt like, I want to mention this? Yeah, I do. And you I can't do- say, di- is it diff- I don't know if you could include Disc Golf. Let's just say if if I could <laughs> have included, well, if, if Disc Golf came up when I typed it into the Pub Meeple game search, <laughs> then it would be on this list. It did not. So it is not. <laughs> Okay, glad we got it out of the way. (laughs) Well, first, just how I created my list. I basically like went through our episode list. I went through my phone for pictures of games. I looked through our Discord to see what games I've been playing a lot and talking about a lot. And I came up with a list of 21 games that I've played this year that brought me a lot of joy that I felt like potentially could end up on my top 10 for this list. I put those into the Pub Meeple ranking engine and then did the traditional pub meeple thing where you were like clicking yes i'm going for this one over that one to come up with my top 10 list um and that so that came up with a list of 21 games that i really enjoyed i might just share the whole thing in our show notes if you're curious but the three honorable mentions so the ones that are just short of making my top 10 list uh number 13 was boone lake that was sort of my Mm. game of the convention for Geekway to the West, but I've only played it once. I bought it, but it's still in shrink and I haven't got it to the table yet. I bet if I played it one more time, it very likely would make this list, but for now, just short. Number 12 was Sushi Go. 
I really love diving deep into this one for our episode. Uh, and since then, it's been one that I've found myself playing live on Board Game Arena every once in a while. If I've got five, 10 minutes to kill, uh, I think it's probably my favorite BGA game for that at the moment. So for that reason alone, it's brought me a lot of joy. And then number 11 is one I actually expected to make this list. I was surprised to see it fall out. And that is Keyforge. Uh, I got in on the recent Asmodee sale where they were selling Keyforge decks for a dollar, bought two boxes of them, um, and I've been playing a, quite a few sealed matches with my wife, Bridget. Um, and we've been having a great time doing that. So it's fun to see Keyforge getting a bunch of plays again this year for me. So that one just short. So awesome. So my list I made by, uh, I did what I do when I want to do anything creative, which is I opened an Excel spreadsheet. Not even joking. And I, uh, I just ranked a bunch of games. I tried to think about uh, memories that I had in the past year, like really memorable experiences or uh, so a lot of games where I had a really distinguished play of them, something that just stood out to me and thinking back of like a fun moment in playing games this year or uh, games that I was having a lot of fun returning to time and time again, maybe digitally. So on Board Game Arena or Yukata. So there's a little bit of mixture of both of those here. Uh, Keyforge did not make my list. I don't know why it didn't because I have been playing a lot of Keyforge the past couple weeks. Uh, having a lot of fun returning. I wasn't able to get in on that sale, which makes me very sad because a dollar a deck is amazing. Uh, but I've just gone back and been playing some of my older decks and sort of getting reacquainted with them and having a lot of fun. Uh, besides that, my other honorable mention, which I didn't really feel like fit in this list of our top 10 board games, is this game that I bought a couple years ago and it made it out because we were watching Obi-Wan, uh, and that's the Starfighter Battle Book, X-Wing versus TIE Interceptor. This is sort of a game system that it first came out in 1989. Um, and it's this game system where you each, it's a two-player game, and each player has their own book. Uh, one player is playing as the X-Wing, and another player is playing as a TIE Interceptor, and your goal is to shoot down the opponent's Starcraft. And you make simultaneous choices that you then flip through the book, uh, trying to outmaneuver the other player, getting behind them, locking on, and shooting them down. Uh, so I had a lot of fun actually uh, even just watching friends play this game and get very into it and very heated. And it was wonderful. So this is sort of just a cool thing that I don't think we talk about a lot on the show otherwise. And I wanted to mention it here because it felt like an appropriate space. Uh, it goes for a lot online, but I think if you're curious at all about sort of a book-driven game for two players uh, that sort of simulates a 3D space, this is intriguing, right? Seeing pictures of this book really mm. tell the story because each page you're actually like looking out at like... A, your cockpit. Your cockpit of your yeah. spaceship, right? Of your X-Wing or TIE or fighter or whatever and seeing, you know, like the other ship in the bottom left like turning that way. And then it's telling you, okay, what are you doing in that situation? So, you know, it's a long, it is a book, but it's a, it's a picture book. <laughs> yeah, it's a picture book that's simulating a 3D game with simultaneous choices. Yeah. Played yeah. page by page. So if you're curious and you want to look this up, again, it's called the Starfighter Battle Book. X-Wing versus TIE Interceptor. It's a West End game. So you'll you'll find it by looking looking there. Awesome. Let's get into it. Let's do it. All right. Well, since it's, I guess, back to me, I'll start with my number 10 game uh, that I've been enjoying the most in 2022 at the halfway point. 
very long title for a top 10 list, <laughs> but I think a very, you know, informative list. Uh, and my number 10 game is Silver and Gold, the flip and write oh, nice. game by Phil Walker Harding. Um, basically in Silver and Gold, you are trying to fill up different treasure maps. And whenever you complete a treasure map, you get points. Uh, and whoever has the most points at the end of the game wins. The way that you'll fill out your treasure map is by flipping tiles or flipping cards from a shared deck and each card will show a different polyomino shape so maybe it's the classic l shape or the square or a t shape uh, and you get to fill in those uh squares on your treasure map uh super simple super fast playing uh, and this game has just like lived in my backpack all year basically and it's kind of been my go-to game for uh filling time in a pinch or um one memorable moment I had with it um, was I went to Lawrence, Kansas uh, to cheer on the college basketball team as they were playing in the national championship. Uh, and so I had to get to a bar downtown super, super early in order to like get in the door. Uh, so I, you know, I got there like with some friends maybe three hours before tip off and we got a table and we just sat there and we played like silver and gold to kill time with like all that like nervous energy. Uh, and it was a blast. It was perfect for that kind of like bar crowded bar situation. Uh, and so I think I'll always kind of have that memory uh, of just like what ended up being a very fun and incredible night. I have two questions. One, the you're using these polyomino shapes to fill in your little, uh, cards of maps that are like dry erase or whatever yeah so you're using dry erase markers are they are those maps and shapes consistent are you always filling in squares and rectangles or are they uh irregular shapes yeah they're a little bit irregular and uh they don't all have the same number of squares so a, cool. sh- uh, a map that has more squares is going to be worth more points at the end um there are also little icons on it so like if you fill up a uh palm tree a palm tree then there's going to be like you look at how many palm trees are also showing in the current display of available treasure maps and you get some points for that. Uh, you can also fill up coins and that's like a little race to uh, finish your coins first to to get the most bonus points for completing all your coins. So there's there's a few other very simple little elements of kind of like overlaid objectives on top of just filling out the maps efficiently. My second question, do you mm-hmm. think there's enough game there that we could cover it on the show? Uh, I, I mean, I think like we could probably cover almost any game on this show. Yeah. I don't think it's the deepest strategy game by any yeah. means. I think uh, it's it's sort of a, a puzzle that is, you know, once you kind of have the puzzle, I'm not sure like that you can really like get that much more out of it from like a strategic lens by like plumbing the depth. Maybe you can get a little bit better at it, but it's sufficiently like random and simple and fun that like, it's always just kind of like a joy to interact with it. Cool. Awesome. Uh, so for those who wonder, that's silver and gold by Phil Walker Harding. It's Jake's game. Sorry for, I, I don't, I won't always say your game at the at the end, but okay. Now my number 10 game, I was thinking back and it, as I was building this list, I was just struggling with what should get slotted into that number 10 spot. Is there were a lot of things sort of jumping up? Uh, and the one that I went back to, I actually, I haven't played it since we covered it on the show 
but it's one that I really, really enjoyed playing and would jump at the chance to play on the table physically uh, and do want to go back and play it a little bit more. And that's Great Western Trail 2nd Edition. We covered this back on episode 61 of the show. It's an Alexander Pfister game uh, that's sort of one part hand management, uh, one part rondel racing game a little bit because you're trying to like set the pace and keep tempo and it's also this like really cool modular board game where you're building out your trail throughout this loop and i think that great western trail had a lot of times when we end up covering games on the show that they sort of have a lot of the edges smooth smoothed off of them and it lets us get at them really directly and, and talk about what's working really well in the system and what's not and great western trail i think is big and messy uh, and sort of all over the place. But I, I really had a lot of fun jumping into the system. And I think especially I enjoyed the way that the buildings in the game work, that if you use the randomized set where everyone's using the same randomized set, uh, but there's, I think, 20 buildings that could, maybe that's not quite 20. There's a lot of buildings. There's a uh, bunch. That could all be on their A or their B side and different buildings beyond their A versus B side can create these different combos and strategic paths through the game and i think that it's just fun i, I don't know I, I haven't had enough of great western trail so i really enjoyed it i felt like it needed to have a place on this list even though it wasn't exactly what i thought it'd be and it didn't quite live up to what i hoped it'd be i think the longer i am away from it the more i appreciate how much i did enjoy it yeah that's interesting i mean definitely a beloved game for a reason probably yeah. at the gamers ranch I, I went to that was the most played game like i just mm. saw games of uh great western trail popping up all the time huh. but like i never for me i'm kind of the opposite like distance has not made my heart grow fonder i never once had that pang of like oh i wish i was in that game it's just like good good i hope you guys are enjoying that i'll be <laughs> well clear over here yeah, yeah. Well, I guess Boone Lake sort of stole your heart a little bit. In yeah, that, in that totally. Sense. You're like, I'll just try this experience instead. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I will jump to my number nine game, which is a Steffenfeld game that I've been enjoying quite a bit online. Uh, and I did get one play of this in person also at Geekway to the West. And that game is Bonfire. Uh, I don't even want to get into like trying to talk about the theme <laughs> of Bonfire because it's just like, weird psychedelic nonsense gnomes starting the great bonfire, but also collecting little bonfires on your personal player board. Okay, whatever. Um, but it is, you know, a classic Steffenfeld point salad game. One of my favorite designers, one of my favorite genres of games. And I just think the more I play this, that this is a very, very good iteration of that. Um, and it's one that I think the more I play, the more I'm, you know, learning new things. I'm like figuring out, you know, what type of a big part of this is you have a little sail sailboat and you're sailing to different islands, picking up quests that you're trying to complete over the course of the game. And I think I'm just, the more I play it, the more I learn like what quests are uh, good uh, and what combination of quests can be done together. Uh, and, and just like finding like these synergies through the game that are really satisfying to complete. So it's definitely a game I want to keep playing more and probably one that's also just continuing to rise for me in the ranks of all-time Steffenfeld games. I feel like for long-time listeners of the show, they'll know that I kind of bounced off Bonfire really hard, but have returned to it. And Jake and I have been playing it on Yukata. Accept the invite for my one-on-one -on -one game, please. <laughs> um, and uh, I'll, I'll say that I think that one really interesting thing about Bonfire is that the 
it lacks a lot of the sort of design footholds that you might see in a lot of typical games that help you find your orientation within the system in terms of understanding what certain actions are meant to do off the bat, uh, which means that learning it is really tough, but it means that once you have learned it, maybe it's really tough trying to learn it on your own. I think if someone taught it to you at the mm -hmm. table, it's not actually too bad. Uh, but once you do learn it, it feels really refreshing uh, how, um, how, big and kind of messy Steffenfeld allowed the game to be. It's it's not like a massive game, but I think that it, it approaches the sort of idea of like a medium to medium weight board game from a different perspective than you would typically see. And that's fun. That's fresh. Yeah. It feels novel. And I like that it, a lot of modern designs lack artifice and they're just really stripped down. And that's not who Steppenfeld is or what his designs are. And in a way, that now feels refreshing. And right. That no, I, that's yeah, such a good it, point. It's cool. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited to keep playing Bonfire, especially if Jake accepts my invite. Yeah. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll cover it on the show at some point because Steppenfeld games are interesting. And I think that in some ways, once we get to Agricola, these two games kind of, I think that there's some kindred design um mm. design philosophy going on yeah. it's pretty cool interesting so that's my number nine game bonfire not an elegant game but it is a great one yeah okay my number nine game is an elegant game uh, what, whatever that means but this game is an <laughs> abstract battling game uh called war chest war chest was pu published in 2018 uh and it's by designers Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson. David Thompson uh, has designed a bunch of other uh, war theme games like Undaunted Normandy, uh, Pavlov's House, a really popular single player game. Um, and War Chest is cool. It's played on this hex based board, and each player has four different poker tokens, uh, poker chips essentially, each representing a different unit. Uh, so, for example, I might have. The crossbow, which if you use the crossbow, it can shoot two spaces away or the knight, which can only be attacked by units that are bolstered, meaning you have extra tokens uh, of that type. So basically you have a bag that you're pulling tokens out of that are dictating what type of actions that you can do. Uh, you can always use a, a token. So like if I have the, the crossbow token, I can move my crossbow piece. I could bolster my crossbow piece, meaning I put that token on top of my other crossbow token out there, making it stronger, harder to remove from the board, or I can control territories uh, by discarding it. And that's how you win, win the game is by controlling six territories out of more than six on the board in a two-player game. Um, and whenever you destroy an opponent's piece, it's removed from the game entirely. It's just put into the box. So there's this real tension between building up and knowing when to advance and try to take certain locations uh, versus sort of biding your time. And I'm still just exploring the system, but I like, I like the simplicity of just draw these tiles. Okay, you have three choices. You played one. Uh, next turn, you'll have two choices. The final turn, you'll have one tile to make a few different few different options with that tile uh the pace of the game is fun and i love that you're always sort of playing with a different team because of the different pieces that you can end up with doing different things the game has a draft at the beginning that i think is sort of the default way to play i've been playing this on yukata uh there's also a website where you can play real time but it's fun i definitely recommend it cool yeah i think that's another game that i have an invite sitting in my inbox from you <laughs> that i've been meaning to get to i don't know what it is but I think maybe it's just the presentation that makes it look like a kind of like an abstract game that I wouldn't love. Mm. So I, I feel like a little bit of hesitation, but I think that's more 
just presentation than anything else. And I think probably once I give it a go, it could definitely end up being something that I like. I think it could go, we'll see which way it goes. I think yeah. it's either going to really resonate with you in the same way that Riff Force did, or I think you're going to bounce off it and feel like it's a little too restrictive uh, and sort of be bummed that you feel like you're just, oh, I'm following the procedure the game told me to follow. So we'll see. And that's War Chest. Speaking of Rift Force, let me move to my number eight game of the year, which is not Rift Force. Oh, bait and switch. It is Libertalia Winds okay. of the Gale Crest, uh, designed by Paulo Mori. I think one of the themes of this list for me is that when I was going through the pub meeple, even though I play the majority mm. of my games online, games that I've had really fun in person experiences with, kind of like ended up to me as like a more important factor. Um, and, and Libertalia Winds of the Gale Crest fits into that category. I've, I think I've played this game three times now, um, but each of those three plays was with, I think, five or six people. Uh, it has just been, you know, a very chaotic, very raucous, good time. And part of the joy for me of owning this game is just that, like, I now feel like I have the perfect game in my collection for those five and six player games. Uh, game groups like when I have to, a reason to pull that out and especially because a lot of the people that end up playing games over at my house are not um, hardcore board game enthusiasts but you know people that will play a game here and there or they'll only play games when they're at my house like the simplicity uh, and I think theming of Libertalia and the chaos right that's like yeah there's definitely strategy and you can be smart in here but also like even your best laid plans can just go completely belly up in a hilarious way um and makes it just really perfect for that situation so very very quick explanation of this game you're basically playing uh, a hand management game where you're you've got a hand of pirates uh, each round you'll play one out in a simultaneous uh selection um, which means it really just whips along quickly and then based on the power level of the pirate you've played they'll all activate in kind of ascending order um, and so there's all kinds of like crazy stuff that can happen with that, right? Where like basically they all activate in ascending order and then uh, coming back down is when you get to pick up a piece of loot. So, you know, okay, I really need this. I'm using my high card, but then somebody played a card that I don't know, like kills the highest value card that came out this round. Just stuff like that, making it like really chaotic, especially at higher player counts. But uh, all three of my plays have just been like a ton of fun and really, really liking it. I haven't gotten to play this game, but I really want to. And the idea of a six-player game that really clips and is totally unblock ungrockable in that sense because of the simultaneous replay and reveal, uh, it just sounds awesome. I want to play this. I really want to play this with you, though, is my problem. Yeah. Which, for listeners, that's a problem because Jake and I live like 400 miles away from each other. So it, it's going to make it tough. <laughs> yeah, I will say, too, like, I didn't like Mission Red Planet at all. So I was kind mm. of like thinking like this might not appeal to me and that's another game that has that like simultaneous selection card selection and then you're like ruining each other's plans for whatever reason i think this version of that is much less punishing mm. like sometimes you get absolutely nothing but almost always you'll be able to like assure yourself something that you want to happen so that i think that makes it a lot more palatable to me um yeah nice that's awesome. So yeah, Libertalia wins of the Gale Crest, my number eight. Awesome. And my number eight is a game that we're going to be covering on the show, and that is, it's a polyomino game. Uh, so it is the Isle of Cats, 
2019 polyomino game about filling in your ship, not a square, not a rectangle, kind of a tapered rectangle, which is your ship with cats. Uh, and these cats are just different polyominoes and you're do trying to do a lot of things. So there's a really cool uh, overlaid puzzle, which is that you're building these cat families and you want as many of the uh, cats of the same color uh, touching each other. Then you're also trying to fill in different rooms on your ship, uh, different Areas on your ship uh, have symbols on them, and each area corresponds to a room. Some cats can somehow go over the walls of rooms. We'll get into it. It doesn't make a ton of sense, uh, but it, thematically, but it, it actually looks really cool, and it functionally makes for a really interesting and fun game. Uh, I think that there's a lot of things that I like about Isle of Cats. This is also like one of the most popular polyomino games of all time, so... I, I don't think that that should be surprised, but I was surprised that I like it as much as I do. I didn't come in expecting to like it quite as much, uh, but I love how messy the board can get and is forced to get because these aren't tetronomos. You're not playing with a classic, simple, clean, that's like really orderly pack of suitcase pieces. These are like, oh no, it's an emergency. Pack cats onto the ship and try to shove tr little treasure pieces between them. And I love that the game gives me the permission to like, to build poorly because there's one other ways to get points rather than just really efficiently packing in your cats and two they're all like pentominoes or hexominoes where they have even more irregular shapes that just don't make them fit together as easily as tetronomos or sort of even the polyominoes included in a game like patchwork and i think that uh, it's made me realize that the design ethos and aesthetic of a lot of polyomino games that i've played have even something like A Feast for Odin have pushed towards let's be really clean and tight mm -hmm. and compact. And I love the Isle of Cats is like make a mess and have fun with it. And then on top of that, there's this whole other drafting element where you're drafting uh, the potential to rescue cats and uh, rescue endgame scoring objectives. Uh, and it adds a lot of complexity. And I don't want to go too deep because I know that we're going to cover this on the show. But I think that there's a lot going on. Some of it's awesome. Uh, and some of it is prickly. Uh, maybe some of it claws back. Nice. At the player. I'm really glad that you've been enjoying that. I think I'll save my thoughts. Okay. Know, to, so awesome. we don't spoil everything, but uh, so people could, you know, get, look forward to a little bit of surprise. But yeah, I'm glad you've been enjoying it so much. Cool. So that's my number eight game, I, The Isle of Cats. Awesome. My number seven game is Azul colon Queen's Garden, or as I like to call it, not Azul colon Queen's Garden, uh, <laughs> the game that is almost nothing like base Azul at all, but is an incredibly thinky, uh, incredibly difficult and fun kind of heavyweight strategy game <laughs> or abstract strategy game. Um, I think it's a super unique game. I think like, you know, using the Azul branding is uh, interesting choice and ultimately a smart choice because uh, it got someone like me who would otherwise not probably be interested in picking up a heavy abstract game sight unseen like this. Um, and I did pick it up and I've had a ton of fun playing it with people just, you know, ever, sometimes you don't always want a super thinky head down game that's just going to be, you know, agony and just tease a brain teaser for you know, upwards of two hours in some of mm -hmm. my plays. Um, but sometimes you do want that. And, you know, I've had a lot of fun playing this game. I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's one I still kind of wrestle with, but going through the list, like, you know, it's one of the games I've played a lot in person this year. Uh, it's one that I think I'm, you know, very happy to own. And in my mind is the best 
new entry to the Azul series since the original. That's awesome. And Jake also talked about this in episode 65 of our show uh, in the Sushi Go episode and gave even more thoughts. So if Jake has you intrigued, you should go back and check it out. This is one I really want to play. Again, I really want to play it with you is my problem. Um, <laughs> but we'll, we'll figure it out. It's it's on my mind. Hopefully, cool. maybe this one would come to BJ one day. Awesome. So that's Azul Queen's Garden number seven. And my number seven game is also a Michael Kiesling game. What? Yes, this is the Palaces of Carrara. Nice. J- Jake and I covered this uh, on episode 51 of Decision Space, one of our first games of the year. And this game is awesome. It is a 2012 game where you're, what are you doing? You're collecting <laughs> different cubes of different colors and you're using them to build buildings uh, in different cities. And you have to use certain cubes to build in certain value cities. So there is a hierarchy in terms of the value of different cubes. And you can always spend a more expensive cube in a less expensive city. And some cities, when you build in them, are going to get you victory points. And some cities are going to get you coins. And you can only use each city a couple times, depending on how you go about activating them, because you can activate everything in a specific city, or you can activate all of a certain type of a building. Or if you're playing with this cool expanded module, you can activate all of a certain color of building. And there's, for what's a pretty abstract euro game there's a lot of different strategic paths and ways to approach this and the more you engage with it and the more you include some of the little mini expansions and other tiles that just like explodes into different viable ways and i found that the more i played the palaces of carrera the more i cared what other people at the table were doing and in my mind that makes it really stand out as a euro game i want to return to Uh, And I have a lot of fun puzzling out both uh, turn to turn what the best move might be because there's this really cool costing wheel uh, where cubes get discounted over time, but you're only buying uh, one of us, all of a specific color. Uh, So it's just the strategic course of the game is really interesting. And then the individual turns are really interesting. It's a really good one that recently came back on GameFound, I believe. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I definitely recommend checking it out. And if this sounded at all interesting, you should go listen to Jake and I gush about it in episode 51. That's the Palaces of Carrara. Totally. I think as the kids say, this game just absolutely slaps. Yeah. Um, and it won't be the last Keesling game that shows up on this list. What? Ooh, I know what it is. Okay. So I, I think I'm up to number six. Uh, and my number six is a little bit of a cheat. Uh, it is a game by, you know, I'm always talking about this designer, probably one of my favorite designers. I don't even think Brendan knows or cares about this designer. Um, and that is Dr. Reiner Kinesia in his <laughs> game, <laughs> in his game uh, Priests of Raw and Raw. So Raw. <laughs> so, I mean, I've, I just grouped these games together. I think actually Priests of Raw is my preferred version of this, uh, having played both of these games exactly one time, exactly one night apart from each other at the Gamer's Ranch. Um, so I talked about this a little bit on our, our last episode, you might remember with Carly from Gnarly Carly Gaming. Um, but essentially, this is a straightforward auction game where players have three tiles that they can use to bid on various uh, different types of tiles that are coming out of a bag. Um, there's lots of just exciting moments. There's exciting moments, whether when uh, a 
auction is randomly triggered. There's exciting moments when players get to choose whether they want to trigger uh, an auction or pick another tile out of the bag randomly. And then there are like very, the, the most iconic moment I think is when it's down to just one person left and they're on their final bit of the round and they're flipping tiles out of the bag and you're just like praying for raw tiles to come up to trigger the auction rather than allowing them to completely fill the display with all kinds of good things for them to have. Um, it's just really fun. I mean, this game is praised to heck by everyone who's played it, it seems. Um, and for good reason. I just absolutely love this game and I'm trying to get in. I think the somebody just shared in our Discord that the pledge manager is open for the new deluxe edition of Raw that's coming out. I think through GameFound, and I am absolutely going to try and snag a copy for my collection. What tips your your hat towards the Priest of Raw over your play of Raw, given one play of each? I mean, so the difference is the tile sets that come out of the bag, and I think that Priest of Raw, uh, the tiles are just a little bit more forgiving, um, and I thought that was nice. Maybe that's you know, maybe over time, if I became an expert at this game and played a million times, I'd want like the more difficult cutthroat tiles of the original. Um, but I think it's just like a nice, fun feeling to have more of the auctions being triggered, being things that are like valuable to you. And they're like, I think they call them like plague tiles that are like bad to have. And those mm. don't feel as hardcore either. Interesting. Um, so it just feels like this tiles are just like a little bit more valuable overall. And of course, that's going to be equal for everyone across the game. So totally a preference. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's my number six game, Priest of Raw slash Raw. Uh, you got me so good, which is perfectly themed for auctions, as I had no idea that you were actually talking about Runner Canizia. My <laughs> number six game is another one that we've talked about potentially covering on the show at some point, but haven't. Uh, made the jump yet and that is the crew mission deep sea so a few weeks ago my mom came to visit us and hang out for a, a couple weeks actually uh, and one of the things that we did was we spent a couple of nights playing round after round of this trick-taking game uh, i feel like i almost don't even need to talk about what the crew mission deep, deep sea is because i feel like it's so out there within board game sphere but i will because if you haven't heard of this, you need to. And that's that this is a co cooperative trick-taking game in which you're trying to complete missions with variable objectives. Uh, and the missions are increasingly difficult the more you play, so you all get better at playing the crew together, which is really awesome. Uh, there's basically four different suits, three different suits of cards, I think, three or four. Uh, and then there's also submarines, which are the Trump suit. And at the start of each round, you basically you get a mission that says, oh, you must win the trick with this card in it, or you must not win these cards uh, in in any of the tricks that you win, or just these different variations of these. And the more you play, the more these get leveled on top of each other. And at times, uh, you sort of say, wow, it, this feels like it's going to be impossible to ever do. Uh, but almost always, especially as you improve, you sort of see, no, this isn't impossible. And there's so much that we can communicate through not communicating at all. Because the other thing about this game is you can't talk about what's in your hand, though you can use this really cool communication mechanic, which you're allowed to do once per round, where you can put a card down and denote using a token if it's the highest color uh, value card of a certain color in your hand, or maybe the lowest of that color, or maybe it's the only card of that color in your hand. So you get 
just a few tools to try to chip away at this really complex problem. And I think because of that, when you uh, solve the the puzzle of each round, when you beat a round of the crew, uh, you get to feel really accomplished together. Because you're given these really blunt objects and you solve this complex problem. And I think that it's a really fun, if not maybe a little exhausting, to just play iteratively over and over a core loop. So that's my number six game, The Crew Mission Deep Sea. Yeah, it's a great one. That you know, I like the limitation on speaking a la team three. <laughs> Did you play it? <laughs> no, I no, just I from just, last episode. Just this little callback. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the speak no evil. Yeah, I think I think you're exactly right. And it, I mean, it's a great game. It has such just like it's just perfect amounts of tension. Like every round is tense, and it has this like you know, it's a there's just so much smart things about it, like yeah. how it uses trick t- taking in a cooperative way, uh, you know, how the tension ratches up perfectly, how, you know, it's, it's cooperative game without any kind of like quarterbacking. And it also has the thing I like in cooperative games where it's like, it can't be a single person's mistake. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, it has to be like multiple people messing up sort of together, uh, which I think even though it feels stressful when you're playing, like that kind of like takes the pressure off any individual person a little bit so i mean it's it's a genius game uh and it's amazing that deep sea has just took the original crew and up just improved it yeah perfect perfect follow-up so smooth i'll move up to my number five game that i've been enjoying this year and it is a keesling and kramer game i believe uh and that game is savannah park is what? this what you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Savannah Park. This is the one I thought you were talking about. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So it's a family game uh, from the Capstone family game line. And in Savannah Park, you have a individual player board. Everybody has their own player board that is filled with a random layout of five different types of animals. Uh, so basically, you have tiles with animals. You put them out randomly on your board. And then the whole way the game works, the entire one rule of the game is on your turn. You will pick up one of your tiles. So maybe I'll pick up the tile that has three elephants on it. uh, And then I'll say, I'm picking the three elephant tiles. And then everybody else finds the three elephant tiles on their board. And they move it to some other space on the board and flip it over to show that it's been moved. And the game will end once all the tiles on the board have been moved to a different space. And then it's just this like spatial puzzle where you're trying to get groups of animals together and you'll score... uh, multiplying the number of animals in an adjacent group of a single type times the number of watering holes in that group. I think there are a max point of thir- max point potential of 33, 11 animals times three watering holes for each of the five different animal types in the game. I think there's five, maybe there's six. I don't know. But I mean, it's like just absolutely dead simple. Sounds so simple that you'd almost think like there's not a game there, but it's just fun to play. It's really tense at the end, whether you see... Uh, what whether your plans are going to work out or not. There's a few other little wrinkles on the board that you have to pay consideration to. So I'm not going to explain all the rules, but um, yeah, like they're just all, it's just got that thing where somebody will say like, all right, uh, let's see, I'll, I'll move the elephant and the ostrich tile. And you're just like, no, like anything but the elephant, but the ostrich tile, because like, you know, like you had to have moved something else first to open up like the perfect space that you're going to put that into. And on the next turn, you're going to like move that to open up the space. And now you can't, and it's like throwing your whole plans off. So like, that's the type of like kind of, 
you know, you could be intentional, really intentional in like analyzing each other's boards. That probably happens more in like a two player game of this uh, than like in a three or four player game, but sort of like that in really fun incidental player interaction. Uh, it, it just feels great. My mom and sister happen to be in town now and they're both people who are like play games occasionally with me, but not big time gamers. They like quicks a lot. I think they just play quicks at home. <laughs> and uh, we played, I showed them this game last night. I was sort of reminded of it and encouraged to play it by the board game barrage podcast that also covered it in their most recent episode, little known podcast. Maybe you've heard of them. Um, <laughs> and uh, so we got it out, we played it and they just like immediately were like, let's play again. And that's just like always the best feeling. And yeah, I've had a lot of success showing this to new players. Uh, and I think like probably right now it's my very favorite gateway entry level weight, lightweight game. So awesome. Yeah. To me, this game intrigues me so much because I feel like the, the core mechanism that dictates all actions in the game. I, I don't know if this is the first time it's been done, but it seems so novel to me and it, it just, it's really cool. And it seems like it would create interesting game states that just flow really well. And the scoring system, it's basically just the King Domino scoring system in a way. And that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Love that scoring system. It always reminds me of like that, like, wooden peg game like the solo game where you have like uh like a triangle shape of like pegs and you have to like jump a peg mm. to like remove a peg that you find at like some like restaurants and stuff like yep. on the table um it's so it's like that because you have to like move something to create a different opportunity for you yeah uh, so i don't know whenever i'm playing it like that's sort of like the puzzly decision space that i feel like the game has cool that's awesome so that that one's savannah park number five I want to check that one out at some point. My number five is a game by John Perry, and it is Air, Land, and Sea, a two-player card game that plays very snappily in which each player... Uh, we ta I talked about this in the last episode, actually, because I love this game so much. Mine and I basically played this game nonstop for a week, and then we basically took a step back and said, whoa, we've gone too deep. We need to take a break. Um, <laughs> But the the sort of really intense sessions that we we had reminded me of when we got really into the Fox in the Forest. Just this really heads up game that has this novel concession mechanism. Uh, so you're playing from the same pool of cards. So there's the potential for one player to be dealt a much stronger hand than the other player. And the design accounts for this by allowing players to concede, giving their opponents fewer points for winning that round than they would if you concede earlier. So if you're dealt a losing hand and you can identify identify that earlier on, you can mitigate the benefit to your opponent. And I think that that system not only makes the game, but it also is just a lot of fun because it makes both players feel good. Uh, when you concede early, it never feels good to lose, but it feels good to know you've lost and make a smart decision and give up less than you would if you couldn't identify your losing position as soon. And on the other side, it always feels good to win, even if you're not winning as much. And if you can ensnare your opponent and get them to give up a little bit more ground uh, before they concede in a winning hand. That feels great. There's really cool potential for combos where the more you play, the more you discover interesting little uh, interactions and setups that you can make between uh, the cards and different hands that you get. And I think that this game, there's just way more game that it would seem for a really small uh, box card game. And that game is John Perry's Air, Land, and Sea. It's a, re a really, really good one. Awesome. Moving along here, my number four game of the year that I've been enjoying so far is BattleCon. It is designed by uh, Brad Talton Jr. of Level 99 Games. 
uh, and BrattleCon is this like 2D fighting game, video game simulator uh, where you have two different, it's a 1v1 game where you have two different fighters going at each other. It has this like amazing, this would have been a great game to pick for the mechanisms that make the game. Mm. So that's like this amazing card play mechanism where you get to create your own fighting moves on the fly by pairing one attack with one base. So you could be doing like the, I don't know, charging blast or you could do the retreating jump kick or whatever you know and uh and it has this like amazing sense of yomi uh in one of like the i think the truest senses that we see it, it that i've seen it in board games where you're trying to uh, especially if you get into a situation where you're playing with a character that you know well against somebody else playing a character that they know well where you're actually engaging in the thing where you're trying to know the mind of your opponent and predict what they're going to do so that you can counter them. But of course they know that you're, you know what they're trying to do. Uh, it has that great donkey space thing, just a, such a fun game. Um, and I, it's one of the only games this year that's like encouraged me to like set up specific like battle con game night. Uh, so I have a friend that's come over on a couple Fridays this summer after work. Uh, that come over on like a Friday afternoon and we've just like jammed a bunch of games of BattleCon um, and took to really try and like learn the system and learn the characters. And those have been two of my you know most enjoyable gaming sort of events of the, of the year really. So it's, it's, it's a fun, it's a fun game, fun system to explore. And I think it rewards, you know, the more you explore it, kind of the more you get out of it type thing. That card mechanism where you're pairing the card with the numbers on the left and the card with the numbers on the right is so cool. And it's so yeah. clever and simple. It's a really, it's one of those really good examples of like, oh, I wish I'd thought of that just because yeah. it's really elegant. And it makes like the thematic like part of the game like yeah. come out, right? Like you really feel like, oh, like I'm visualizing what's happening just because of like the mechanism like that mechanical theming like really adding to the environmental theme in such a like an intuitive way that like you're visualizing what's happening it's cool too that it gives you that like one evocative word that mm -hmm. then you can use to sort of imbue yeah really good i'm i'm gonna reinstall the online version right after this call so cool. we can maybe begin to to delve into it there's another one though that would be so fun to play in person okay <laughs> my number four game is one that I had a really fun experience playing with some friends when they came to visit. Uh, this is a Reiner Kinesia tile lane game. It is not Tigris and Euphrates, which I love, but it is Blue Lagoon. Blue Lagoon is really, uh, I, I would say maybe the most approachable of his tile lane games that I've played uh, out of stuff like Tigris and Euphrates or Babylonia. Uh, this is a game where you are playing, uh, uh, you're sort of exploring these archipelagos and you're building using little uh your little people tokens and you also have these huts and you have a bunch of different objectives maybe you're trying to collect resources and spread out across uh, a bunch of different islands maybe you're trying to have a majority on a specific island and at you play this uh first by saying okay you can place anywhere in the water or adjacent to any of the pieces that you've already placed um, and then at the end of that round, everyone takes their score. You have uh, some special hut pieces that you can also place in that round. And then after round one is done, you pick up all of your pieces, except for the huts that you've placed down, the houses, I should say. Uh, and then in the second round, when you play this game, you can place anywhere adjacent to any of your pieces on the board. And you cannot place in the water unless you have a piece adjacent to the water. 
Um, so what that means functionally is you can place when you start, instead of being able to go anywhere in the water, just anywhere next to your houses that you've played down. And I think that that creates this really interesting dynamic where there's some randomized resources that come out that you might want uh, in, in round one that push you in certain directions. In round two, everything's randomized, but you've committed somewhat to your starting position or completely to your starting position by where you've placed your houses and you're in round one. And I, I, it goes really quickly. It's fun. The scoring is a little robust towards the end. It's definitely a score pad game, uh, but it's a game I you could play with anyone. My mom and aunt really love playing this game on their own, uh, which they picked up after my mom. I showed it to my mom and it's it's just really interesting that's and fun. awesome yeah that's yeah. so rewarding yeah they're super into it it's great that's great uh, it's also really affordable so blue lagoon huge win all around is my number four game of this year so far is that your first kinesia game on your list yeah we got to we got to top four for yeah the first so game. i think so far we both have one on our list so you yep. probably we both kind of appreciate kinesia's designs equally i would say i, um, I think so <laughs> yeah <laughs> All right, so moving on to my number three game of the year, the 2016 game designed by Kevin Riley, Eon's End. Uh, mm. So if you've been listening to this podcast for a while this year, this probably isn't a surprise to you. Uh, it's a game I've talked about quite a few times of just how surprised I've been at how much I've enjoyed playing this game. Um, it's been just a total blast. I think I've played either three or four times now and every single time has been just a lot of fun exploring different characters exploring different like uh adversaries the adversaries in this game uh i have like the second edition version there's a bunch of eons end out there that you could have uh just i think are designed so well in that they really pose different challenges to you that are interesting to think through um and the game just does a remarkably good job of creating this like narrative curve where it's like everything's fine um, and then everything very quickly becomes not fine and then everything very quickly becomes like a total disaster and you're certain that you're going to lose and then you win. <laughs> and that's been my experience every single time where it's just like, okay, but this time we're actually screwed. Like this is actually the time we lose and then we've won. Uh, so we have won all three, which could be a big turnoff to a lot of people winning your first three times. But we, I have been playing on like the, you know, basic normal difficulty. Uh, there's a way... I think the adversaries all have like an extreme mode um, that I could try out. And I think I would try out if I was ever playing with the same group of people again. Um, but the normal mode works perfect. It's great for teaching new people. And I had a friend of mine, Bridget and I, has come over who's a big fan of Dominion and show him this game has very similar deck building mechanisms to Dominion. It has uh, the, the version of deck building where you just have like one stagnant display of cards that you're picking from the whole game which i think is something that i personally prefer to uh, a more dynamic display of cards we have like random stuff shuffling in and out to buy from um so it, it mirrors dominion in a lot of ways but turns it into this like cooperative epic adventure game with a really fun theme and i've just had a total blast playing it uh just you know i don't know if it's the deepest game in the world but just like for pure simple like i don't know like popcorn game fun this has been my number one you know experience for that this year no surprises from jay clover of co-op games <laughs> and deck builders <laughs> and deck builders no that's so awesome i feel like the more you talk about aeons and the more that i 
wish that I had had the chance to play it at this point. It's an indie boards and cards uh, game also. Which I, 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 it's sort of interesting. I think of them so much as the Resistance publisher. Like mm-hmm. in my head, they're like, oh, they're the people who did the Resistance and Coup. And like they do a lot of other stuff. So I don't know why I just had that set in my head as yeah. them being the publisher of those two games. But Aeon Zen sounds awesome. And it's amazing that it's produced that exact arc of we're doing great. Oh, no, we're going to lose. This is terrible. There's no way we can win. Oh, now we won. Especially Every like, time. That's especially, great. yeah, like the second and third time is you like you would feel like, OK, like I've seen this movie before, but sure. still, like experience. It's just like, you know, it's like a real like one of those superhero m- movies, right? Where it's like you have that like most like, yeah, I know that the superheroes are going to probably like win at the end, but things seem really bad right now. <laughs> like, you know, I just don't see how it's going to happen. And then it does, you know, it's the same sort of deal. Yeah. Which is so cool for a game when you're playing and you don't see how it's going to happen. And then you, yeah, that's great. Exactly. Okay. My number three game is a roll and write game by Eilis Svensson and Christian Osby. And it is the trail. No, no, there's no, the, it is trails of Tucana. What? I don't even know anything about this. So you have to tell me. Yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I was talking about this in discord for a lot for like six days. Um, (laughs) This is so the trails of Tucana is this really cool flip and write game where each player has their own personal sheet, like uh, basically every roll and write game that I can mention uh, and on it to pick a bunch of different hexes and these hexes show different terrains. So there's maybe there's forests and there's water and there's desert and there's rocks and spread across your whole little Island. There's also these different sites. So there's two little obelisks and two little dragons and two little cute yetis and just these different things. And uh, at the start of each turn, you're going to flip two cards from this deck and it's going to give you two terrain types. So it might say, uh, you can connect a water to a forest and then you would pick anywhere on your map where you could connect where a water is adjacent to a forest. And then you draw a line from the center of that water to the center of that forest. And as you play, you're trying to make connections between the different sites and between certain um, locations on the outside of your board. So there's uh, two A's, two B's, two C's, two D's, um, and two ease uh and you're also getting points that checks out. yeah yeah thank you <laughs> it's tough you're also <laughs> getting points for basically building trails between these different locations so if you can connect a to a you're going to get a certain number of points and if you're the first player to do that you're going to get more points than anyone who follows you because there's this cool award system um and you're also whenever you connect those sites that i mentioned right so if i connect the obelisk on my map uh, using trails that go to that obelisk, uh, well, then I get to take a bonus action. I get some points and then I get to draw another trail. So you can set up these really big combo turns where basically you've connected a bunch of things and you have the sprawling trail system. And then by connecting a couple paths, all of a sudden you get to unlock four more bonus actions that let you do four more things. And I found that uh, Maya and I played this game about 30 times. And I think by the 30th or so play, we had a really good sense for how this game would play out, uh, what we were going to be able to accomplish. And it never feels like you could play so well, you accomplish everything. It's just not that sort of game, but it's super fun. The decisions are pretty interesting and there's an interesting uh, mixture of risk or reward in terms of how greedy you want to be based on what combinations of different elements coming out is. Uh, and there's a, 
the way that you set up, everyone's board is slightly different. So you're not always making the same decisions as everyone else uh, based on the same inputs, which can be an issue in some roll and write. So this is a really cool roll and write game that I wish more people talked about and, and knew about. I think you would really like this one, Jake, and it's one I'd love to get in front of you. I would say I like it slightly more than cartographers, I think. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, sounds great. Uh, so my number three game, Trails of Tucon. Yeah, definitely one I'll have to look up. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> Brendan's been talking about it in the Discord. Who knew? All right. <laughs> Moving on to my number two game. This one is probably not going to be a big surprise to listeners of this podcast. It is Rift Force by Carlo Bordellini. So Rift Force, the game I first played at um, Geekway to the Westcon. I uh, played it a bunch of times there. Felt like I got really good at it. Um, and it was just blown away by, you know, how much game exists in this little tiny box and this little tiny simple rule set. Uh, basically in Rift Force, it is like a lane battling hand management game where you'll do a draft of four different element types at the beginning of the game. And then you'll play them into various lanes, try to kill your opponent's elements across from you. Uh, and if you manage to clear out their elements entirely, then you can also get some points by draw doing the check and draw action where you get a point for every unopposed lane and draw back up to your hand size of seven basically just explained the whole game it's a race to 12 points and um yeah so i mean i've just had the most fun exploring this game trying to get better at it every time i feel like oh yeah now i'm like pretty good at this game i'll play somebody who just like whips me and then i'll just like rematch 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 uh until i'm you know finally win one or whatever uh so you know i still feel like there's a lot to learn recently i was thinking plants are just like absolute trash and then uh one of our friends in the Discord uh, just beat me like three times in a row with team comps that included plants. So I had to look. now I'm like, wait, maybe I'm wrong, but I still don't think I'm wrong. I think, you know, who, who knows what happened? The fluke. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, it's just a game I've totally loved exploring the decision space and trying to like work my way up that skill ladder. Uh, and every new rung feels like definite and fun to achieve. Um, yeah, it's just, I mean, absolutely impressive design from a kind of a sophomore designer. I'm really excited that you brought Rift Force into the podcast and that we got to play together through Board Game Arena. And it's one that I've actually kept playing since the episode some too. Uh, specifically, Key and I in our Discord have just been rematching back and forth. So I, I've had one game active since our Rift Force episode. And I feel like I've learned a lot about the game since we last played, but mostly my thoughts on it remain the same. I think that there's some the pacing for me is still a little bit off. Like it's still a herky jerky game. And I think that in some ways that sort of herky jerky, like build up actions. Oh, I'm going to stop and check and draw and then build up. It's like, it's like watching golems that like haven't been greased since their creation 300 years ago, like slowly slug at each other, which is awesome. Such but, a weird metaphor. metaphor. Great. <laughs> but okay, I like it. I see where you're I see where you're going with that. Yeah. But yeah, as we often do, we watch the golems that haven't been greased in three thousand years. Exactly. Very relatable. Yeah, so that's Rift Force. <laughs> but uh <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It uh the pacing doesn't work for me, but everything about else about the game I really like. And I keep learning more about the heuristics of the game. Uh so I think the heuristic structure and hierarchy is really interesting. I uh, I think the deck shape, like the fact that you 
you have four houses or like four card types in your deck at all times but the way the pacing of the game works you really only interact with three of them at a time typically Mm -hmm. which is it's interesting and it adds this extra layer to the game of do i want to try to get all four of my cards on the board I, i think there's we said in our episode that Rift Force is one of the few games that Jake and I could see doing even more shows about if we wanted to, because there's enough game there. And I, I think that that's true. And it's a cool game. If you haven't played Rift Force, you should check it out on Board Game Arena. Yeah, it might still be an alpha. What? Just FYI. But... So if that happens, come to our Discord and someone will help you get access. Yeah, maybe. there you go. Okay, so for my number two game, it's actually... there. Jake has no idea what's coming. No idea. Probably and, another game I've never even heard of. <laughs> I can promise you it's not that. But I, you said that you've been playing a game on Board Game Arena a bunch when you have downtime, a drafting game, and that game you said was Sushi Go. And I have also been doing that. But I have been playing a ton of Seven Wonders. Oh, so, no. Yeah. Oh, boy. So, Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Seven Wonders is actually, I think, the third hobby game that I bought after sort of jumping into the hobby. And I played it a bunch with my friends back in 2012, uh, 2013, maybe, and had an awesome time with it. It was a really good game for us at that time, but I didn't dive deeper. And I never again found myself with a group of people that I could play the game with regularly and enjoy it because I think you need a dedicated group to really get the most out of this game. It it's a simple drafting game where everyone is playing as a a different wonder. You could be the uh, you could be Artemis, you could be the statue of Zeus, you can be Babylon, you can be uh, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Holly Carnassus. You basically have your own abilities that you can use. That in seven rounds you're going to draft seven cards and you're going to play them down and you're going to collect different resources and you're going to pursue victory points in round number three. And there's these somewhat different paths, but not really. You're kind of doing a little bit of everything in terms of pursuing science and uh, the blue buildings that just give you points and military. And I think that getting to go back and play Seven Wonders on Board Game Arena has made me appreciate how awesome this game is um, and how deep the decisions are. And I think that I've had a really interesting learning curve with it, revisiting it, because when I first started playing it, you sort of, okay, what is good? I have no idea what's good. And maybe after 10 games, you have a sense for what might be good. Like, you know what the good cards probably are, but you don't know how to set yourself up for a good uh, synergistic overall build. And it's hard to say, oh, what's what's the cost of this card that I might build in round three? And how do I make decisions off that? That's like, it's hard. And early on when you're playing, you don't need to care. But once you've played a hundred games, you start to care a little bit more and you, you can keep these things in your mind and you know what buildings are only in deck number three and what how many exist of them. Um, so I've had an absolute blast playing this game. It's another one that takes less than 10 minutes to play on Board Game Arena live. I really like playing this game with four people that's my ideal player count i don't think it's as good at three and i don't think it's anywhere near as good higher than four um definitely should not be played with seven in my opinion because you lose the potential for cards to wheel around the table uh, and come back to you which is one of the things that i think makes for some of the most interesting decisions the more i play this game the more i appreciate how interesting the decisions are every single round from the first pick of the game Uh, and i love that the card pool is set in this drafting game so that you can really think critically about what packs that you might, what, I'm saying packs, but what groups of cards you might get past. Uh, and also 
by the sort of third hand, if there's four people at the table, you have a pretty good sense for what is coming. And I just think the decisions are, are really, really interesting. And I felt myself get better and better at the game. And I, I want to keep playing. So over the course of the last seven, six months or so, I've been playing in these sort of stints where I'll play 20 games, 30 games, 40 games, take a break for a few weeks, go back to it and do that again. I think right now Isle of Cats has my attention for drafting, but I'm going to go back to Seven Wonders. And I think you specifically would enjoy learning Seven Wonders, Jake. I'm not positive you'd enjoy playing it, but maybe there's a chance you would, but I know you'd enjoy learning it. It does feel like an oversight that I've never played Seven Wonders at this point. Uh, We should say we have a uh, Discord member Jan, who runs the what wonderful plays YouTube channel. I think he's played Seven Wonders like ten thousand times. Is a multi-time Seven Wonders world champion uh, who just recently got married. So congratulations to you uh, and your wife. Um, but yeah, I think he'll be very excited to hear this discussion. And you know, maybe as like a little bit of like a late wedding present, we can cover it <laughs> on this show at some point. <laughs> I think I think it definitely before I jumped back into it, right? Because we covered Seven Wonders Duel on the show, really enjoyed it. Uh, Seven Wonders Architect is a game I played and I bounced off of pretty hard. It just wasn't quite what I was hoping it would be. So we went back to Seven Wonders and sort of said, "Wow, this is really good. Maybe Seven Wonders really deserves its spot." And I had kind of discounted it after all these years and said, uh, "This is a game that I've moved on from. The design decisions don't make a ton of sense." The more I play it, the more I think I was wrong. Yeah. One more plug for Decision Space community member. Uh, we have Aurora, one of our community powerhouses. Oh, good job, Jake. Oh, my gosh. She put up the Seven Wonders Architect. Amazing blog post talking about the strategy that exists in this game that a lot of people miss on their first couple of plays. So that is now on our website. You can read it or amazing strategic mind, great writer. Highly recommend you check out the article. Yeah, so we're really, really excited about this article being on the site. So if you go to, you can find it at decisionspacepodcast.com. We're hoping to potentially be at, to add more articles there in the future. Uh, so be on the lookout for more. And if you ever wanted to write about something decision space related, potentially reach out to us, uh, find us in the discord, or you can always send us an email and we'll take take a look. Awesome. So that's your number two game, Seven Wonders, and also a little bit about how awesome the Decision Space community is. If you want to be a part of that, we'd love to have you. You can find a link to our Discord in the show notes of this podcast, as always. All right, Brendan, are you ready for our number one game of 2022 that we've been enjoying the most thus far? Yes. <laughs> okay, what is great. what is your take? I well, Brendan, I hate to do this to you, but we're going back to the doctor, Reiner Kinesia, with my number one game I've been enjoying this year. What? And that game is, do you know what it is? No, what is it? It's not Tigers and Euphrates. Absolutely not. <laughs> it, it is a little legacy game, a little polyomino oh. tile placement game wow. called My City. Bought this game a few months ago several months ago uh and thought it was just gonna have to stay in the package for many more months while my wife uh traveled to peru to do her dissertation work for her phd where she's now um and but that trip got delayed a month due to you know things in the world and covid and uh, travel advisories and all that and having a little bit of extra time together, we did decide to break this out. And I think we played the first, 
maybe five uh, kind of episodes. I think they're called episodes of this game. Uh, and each episode includes three plays with slightly changed rules. Uh, it's basically a very, very simple polyomino game where you have a deck of cards that show all the different building shapes. You flip it up uh, and play one of your buildings onto your board. Uh, and then, you know, at the end of each round, you get point scoring based on how efficiently, essentially, you placed out your tiles. Dead simple, just plays so breezy. You know, I'm not going to get into like spoilers about how things get changed up, but so far the different episodes have all been like really interesting, just, you know, tweaking things just enough to, to keep it fun without ever making it feel like, oh, I have to like learn a bunch of new rules. So it's just, I think, you know, legacy game perfected, polyomino placement game perfected. You know, it's just been a 10 out of 10 experience so far. Definitely easily the best gaming experience I've had this year. Uh, and I can't wait to finish it up once Bridget gets back from Peru. Easily. Yeah. Easily the best. <laughs> my city from Radio Canizia. Yeah, that's one of, my, one of my favorite designers. I'm always talking about how he's one of my favorite designers on this show. And you're always like, I don't know, you know. I knew this day would come. I'm so <laughs> happy. Okay, that's really, really exciting. I have not played My City, but I really wanted to before we started recording. Even when you just said you'd picked it up, I was excited. Uh, and now I'm really, really excited. So I, I'm going to have to explore snagging snagging a copy myself. Yeah, yeah I think it's always so... Seeing Reiner Kinesi's versatility is really impressive to me. And I feel like My City is a great example of like, I would never expect him to come out with a Polyomino uh, legacy game, but he did and people love it. So yeah. he just, what can he do? I think like just a just a small like additional thought on legacy games. I honestly think what makes legacy as a mechanism for games so great isn't what changes about the game, but mm. it's like what doesn't change about the game. Yeah. Right? It's the fact that like people, you know, like me that just has like such an embarrassment of riches in terms of like games I could pull off myself. It's hard to like want to go back to the same game over and over again but like a legacy game like gets you to do it mm. and just being able to like set up a game that you already know and start playing is such a joyful experience that i honestly like don't do enough because i'm always you know seeking like you know that first high of a new game experience um and so i think you know to you know it, it both makes me like think of the legacy genre differently but also just about like looking at my collection like i really need to make an effort to dive deeper in some of the games i really love um see if i can find like dedicated groups of people to do that with so awesome well it seems like on the decision space podcast we're approaching this universal theory of the best designer of all time because my I number you, one game I know it. <laughs> of the year so far of 2022 so far that i've been enjoying most that i've actually played is a reiner kandizia game and it is babylonia, babylonia. yes <laughs> uh so babylonia is another tile laying game uh as you can see i really love these games tigris and euphrates didn't make the list mostly because i've had so much fun with babylonia and blue lagoon playing them over the table this year and babylonia is sort of a retake uh, it's part of the new tile laying trilogy with blue lagoon and Yellow and Yangtze that sort of reimagine Kinesia's classic tile laying games. And Babylonia is a little, uh, people say, mostly inspired by Samurai, uh, a game which of his that I have not played. But in Babylonia, uh, you 
have a hand of tiles uh, and the tiles are either nobles or they're farmers. And on your turn, you can play two tiles from your hand and those tiles can be any of your tiles or you can play as many farmers as you have. Um, nobles are tiles that are important to city scoring uh, and city scoring is potentially really good because you can build these huge chains of tiles across the whole board which means that you're scoring uh, an individual noble tile multiple times potentially so if you're able to do that you can potentially get tons of points off placing just one tile so long it's connected to this bigger network farmers are really good because they allow you to take farms which give you an instant flat bonus of points potentially equal to maybe here's five points for claiming this with this farmer and because they spread out so quickly you can use them to make these longer networks even though they themselves are not giving you points for scoring and then there's this third way that you're getting points besides cities and farms which are ziggurats uh, that you just get points for placing next to based on the number of ziggurats that you're already next to so you don't just want to claim a ziggurat quickly. Maybe you want to spread out. So every time you place next to a ziggurat, you're getting five points uh, if you're or something along those lines. And then also, if you surround a ziggurat and you have the most of your tiles around it, you're going to get a special power that changes the fundamental rules of the game for you and what you can do compared to everyone else, whether that's tiles you can play, the number of tiles you have in your hand. Maybe you'll get to just take another turn right away or you'll get 10 points. Or maybe there's even wilder stuff that you could do. And it, they're all really interesting. And Babylonia is really cool because I've put this game in front of people who I can tell are hungry to play more complex games, but we want a game that will play in under an hour with really meaty decisions. Um, so I played this with my younger cousin who visited one night up from New York. He's sort of like, let's play a board game. And I was like, okay, let's play Babylonia uh, if you're up for it. And he was, and we had this amazing time. And I introduced it to some other friends. Um, actually the same friends who were enamored with the Starfighter battle book. Um, and they came back on, uh, we had this amazing night playing Babylonia. Um, and one of my friends won and she came back on the 4th of July and she said, we were sort of talking about what we should do waiting for the fireworks. She's like, we could play Babylonia, uh, which made me very, very happy, right? Introducing a game to, to a friend, seeing them really enjoy it and then having them actually come back and want to play again. Um, I think that Babylonia offers a lot of really interesting decisions and has an incredibly high skill ceiling without being bogged down in, compl um, in, in complex rules or edge cases or even uh, conflict that feels like conflict for conflict's sake. Uh, I'm not sure Maya, my wife, would agree with that. She's felt like this game can be pretty conflict heavy, but uh, which it can at too. Um, but I think that it just hits perfectly for me in a lot of ways. And it's one that I want to play. The more I play it, the more I want to play it, which yeah. is a game that I think deserves to be your number one. So for that's sure. my number one of 2022 in my top 10 games so far that I've played this year, Babylonia. Amazing. Yeah, it's definitely one. I feel like for me, this is like the ultimate game that I want to play with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, I know. I mean, there's. It's like triggers some of my like gaming biases, like that you shouldn't have hands of tiles. You shouldn't mm. have hands of cards. I'm just like <laughs> anti that. Okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm. Imagine. I don't know. 
I, I don't know if I'll like it because, you know, I, I have like a tumultuous relationship with T&E and I know this is kind of in the similar vein, but I am growing on a lot of the Knizia games that I've been playing lately. So, I mean, I've definitely loved to give it a whirl sometime, but yeah, I, I, there was no doubt for me that this would be the number one game for you, just how much you talk about it, how much you love it. Uh, when we came up with this as the idea for our episode. So Dang. I think certainly well-deserved for you. Well, I'm excited to know that I'm never surprising. <laughs> no. Thanks, Brendan, for your very rote contributions to this week's episode. <laughs> <laughs> and for exciting fresh takes, check out our podcast, that article, or our podcast website, that new article from Roar. I think this was a really fun episode. I'd love to hear people's thoughts on it. Like, what are your top 10 games of 2022 so far? How does that align with, like, your top 10 games period yeah. uh, because very little crossover, no crossover between our lists at all, which is interesting since we tend to have a lot of tastes uh, that seem to align on our game reviews. Um, and I don't think any, maybe, I mean, maybe if I finish up my city, that was get into my top 10 games of all time. Maybe if I play more, priests of raw and raw that could potentially get up there not sure any of the other ones would so it's just interesting how you know how different it the games that we love to play are from the games that we purport to love (laughs) yeah no totally yeah it's really interesting well i guess for our listeners know that coming up we're going to be covering again uh, living forest next week you'll see if we love that game Uh, and then the week after that the Isle of Cats, both of which are on Board Game Arena in one capacity or another. Living Forest is definitely in full release. And I believe Isle of Cats is is too, is it? I have no idea. Okay, well, again, good job us doing our research. You could definitely play it with people in our Discord, uh, which you could find a link to in our show notes. Discord's just like a, a chat room that you can access from any browser. And in the Decision Space Discord, there's lots of awesome people talking about games who probably have a are interested in delving deeper into questions about games like you are, because you're a listener of the show. Well, with that, I think that this is going to be another successful episode of Decision Space in the books. I know Jake and I would love to hear from you. Jake said uh, his top 10 hearing what your top 10 games of 2022 are so far. And I'd also love to hear what you think of us doing these more topical episodes more frequently. We get feedback from a lot of people that they love our topical episodes and our what we talk about episodes uh, a lot. And they also like the game episodes, but it seems like there's appetite for even more topical discussion. So if that's the case for you, let us know. And if not, let us know that too. We'd love to hear from you. And with that, uh, play some games and have a good week, y'all. Bye.